from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. Hola. Hola. Hablas español? Un poquito, muy malo. Sí. <laughs> oh, y uh, no sé la palabra for microphone. Don't worry, I know exactly how to use this. Thank you. Today, we are bringing you some of our favorite stories from 2018. And one of the highlights of my year doing Studio 360 was meeting Daniela Vega, the star of A Fantastic Woman, the Chilean movie directed and co-written by Sebastian Lelio that won the 2018 Oscar for Best Foreign Film. A Fantastic Woman is about a young transgender woman, a singer, whose life is upended when her middle-aged boyfriend suddenly dies. Vega's character, Marina, faces the kinds of misunderstanding and mistreatment that trans people go through all the time, but in the extreme, dealing with suspicious police and her dead lover's cruel family members. And she does all of this with resilience and humanity. Daniela and I spoke in February, just before the Academy Awards. My high school Spanish is pathetic. So we were also joined by Kika Child to help out with the interpretation. Muchas gracias por la invitación. Thank you very much for the invitation. I, I like this movie very much. It is plausible and beautiful and moving and occasionally disturbing. Is some of the abuse that your character Marina experiences similar to what you've faced as a trans woman? I would say that no one in this world can say that they've never been uh, bullied or have violence against them. So, yes, I've been discriminated, as many other people too, but I've had the luck of always being supported by my family, my close friends, and my circle. That's why the violence or discrimination that I've had to live has been more from the state, from the universities, from institutions that don't allow me to move. And that's complex, because I had been wanting to get into the arts for a very long time, but I hadn't been able to do it in that way. So, uh, Sebastian Lelio uh, essentially wrote this character around you. It's custom-made for you. As an actress, how do you prepare to do that role? I mean, that that's different than a normal acting job. Mm-hmm. Bueno, para inducir el personaje... In order to create the role, to bring it on, I got myself wet with Marina in every way. Lo que primero hice fue... So the first thing I did, because Santiago is very big, was going to the places where Marina lived, and the colors of the neighborhood. Uh-huh. Start creating her uh, history, um, the, how she moved around in these places. Y una biografía. The background. Claro, la inventé como una historia. 
Y eh, luego, cuando el casting se cerró, when the casting was closed and when I knew whom I was going to work with and who was Orlando going to be played by. Fuimos, Orlando being your boyfriend, companion, uh-huh. husband, yeah. Fuimos a, fuimos a comer, eh, muchas veces. We went for dinner many times. We went to bars. We were trying to... Tratando de encontrar... As though you were on a date, sort of? Profesionalmente hablando, digamos. Yes, 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 yes. Eh, pero para, para de alguna manera yo saber... So that I could know eh, how to look at him, where to put my hand. Hay que reconocer al otro como... como you have to recognize the other as someone that you could possibly fall in love with. Porque Marina efectivamente está muy enamorada de Orlando, entonces yo tenía Marina que... is in fact very in love with Orlando. You have acted for almost a decade now, but for the decade before that, you were singing opera since you were a little kid. Sí. Um, empecé a cantar ópera porque mi abuela I started singing opera because my grandmother was blind and she taught me how to see sound. Entonces me decía, cierra los ojos y so she would say, close your eyes and put an image to the radio. And imagine that you're singing in the middle of the stage and the audience is numb looking at you. Y empecé a imitar eso. And I started imitating that. Y descubrí que la música me servía para dejar de And I learned that music helped me ignore the voices of the kids, the other kids who would bully me in school. Y un día... La profesora de música del colegio. One day, our music teacher in school, she said, we're going to have singing classes at school, and whomever wants, you can come and go to the, the, the classroom. Y fui. And I went. Entonces, el piano, the piano, y canté un poco. And I sang a little bit. And I continued, and I never stopped singing. And that's you singing here in a scene from the film, which you told me earlier was your idea, that scene, and which, to my mind, uh, entirely makes the movie. So, congratulations. Muchas gracias. Uh, Let's watch a a different scene from the film, and, and I want you to describe what we're seeing here. A ver. This is a couple of days after Marina's uh, lover, Orlando, has died, and she's meeting his ex-wife. And she's basically saying, okay, I'll pay you off, get lost. And Marina, with a lot of dignity, tells her that she doesn't need her money. Y Sonia, que es el personaje de la ex mujer de Orlando. And Sonia, who is eh, Orlando's ex-wife, says, you will not go to the wake, you will not go to the funeral. Daniel, no vas a ir al funeral, ni a ninguna parte. Y entonces ahí, para Marina, comienza... So this is a great um, problem for Marina, because she has to decide if to go or not go right. to the wake. Y entonces, eh, finalmente, esta es una... So this is a situation of um, a lot of decisions to make because whatever decision she makes will change the journey of the movie. Right. I mean, it's really horrible, this woman who's no longer married to him saying you who have essentially been married to him saying 
you you can't be part of this. But as as unpleasant as that character is, she's not a monster. Ella está actuando por temor. She is acting out of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Y, y por desconocimiento. And lack of knowledge. That scene and others too. Uh it seems to, you 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 play in this kind of understated way. You could have gone bigger and wilder. Did did Sebastian Lelio direct you to like eh, keep it keep it quiet? Don't don't overdo it. Or was that just the way you performed? Mira, la técnica es para crear. This is the technique. In order to create this character, what I did was to put one layer on top of the other. So that these emotional layers wouldn't look like a stairway. So what I did was diffuse these, um, the borders of these emotional layers so that one would be after the other. Entonces, en vez de ver las emociones como so instead of seeing these emotions as a stairwell, yo las mostré como una rampa. I delivered them as a ramp. Beautifully put. Como una pluma que cae. Like a feather falling. No como una bola de acero que cae. Pa! Not right. like a steel ball falling. There you go. You should teach acting. That's well, you know, well put. Uh, there are, as we've said, some rough scenes of anti-trans bigotry in this in this film. Um, do you think it's a pretty fair representation of uh, the way the life for trans people is, at least in a in a big cosmopolitan city like Santiago? Um, yo diría que así como hay... I would say that just as there's people who don't live uh, trans realities, that's the reality Marina lives. But we should also say that there's many Orlandos in life, which means that there's many men who are willing to fall in love with a trans woman. And that's very nice because it allows families to diversify. And therefore, people can live with some more freedom. But of course, the societies that lack this, uh, these laws to protect this identity. It will be hard to have the tools to build a more hopeful future. Is, is this film, as people see it, one of those tools? The tools are given really by the state. What the movie can do is ask you what you are doing with your empathy. What would you do if you were in this situation? And ask you, how do you live love and how do you deal with the limits of love? Right. And in the end, and what I would like to take away at the end of this interview, is to ask ourselves, what are we doing with the time that belongs to us today? And what are we going to leave for future generations? Are we going to leave them only buildings, cars? Or are we going to create more empathetic, more diverse societies? More open to diversity. Daniela Vega, uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Muchas gracias. A fantastic woman won the 2018 Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. And Daniela Vega was the first transgender person in history to present at the Academy Awards. And you'll be able to see her in 2019 in the upcoming new adaptation of Armistad Maupin's Tales of the City, a miniseries on Netflix. As anybody who's even watched the Academy Awards knows, there's a lot that goes into a movie besides 
acting and directing. Once shooting ends, the jobs for a lot of the crew are just beginning. In come the editors and Foley recording artists and color graders and lots more. With so many separate collaborators along the way, it means that little mistakes can get made. Glitches in the picture or in the audio or continuity. So before they send any new movie out to theaters or release a remastered version of some old TV show, producers want to make sure that the final cut is absolutely perfect. And the only way to do that is to have somebody watch it and watch it again and again. I watched Transformers 2 at least 15 times. You picked the wrong planet. The wrong planet. Star Trek. I'd watched every episode multiple times Captain to Enterprise. Captain in multiple to Enterprise. languages. Casey Trela is a musician in Los Angeles, but his day job is being a mastering quality control technician. Every day, I get up and I drive to a little office park in Burbank and I watch TV and movies, and I look for mistakes in them for 8 to 10 hours a day. As part of our series on day jobs, Casey told us about his two very different occupations. My boss described the way to focus on what we're watching as you're looking at a window, and you're trying to find errors in the window while other stuff is happening behind it. You're trying to find things that are, like, getting in the way of you being able to take in what's happening in the story. So your focus is a little bit more scanning around the screen, looking at edges of frames and looking places where maybe you normally wouldn't. Little blips that just pop up for one frame, like a black dot or a white dot or pink or something that'll just flash up there. Then there's production issues, which I think are my favorite. Those are when a boom mic drops into a shot or you look in someone's sunglasses and you can see the cameraman. Anything where you can like see the production actually happening a little bit. When we get movies in, I have to watch them multiple times because we'll find errors the first pass. And then there's also just multiple versions of movies where there'll be different edits and they'll be going to different countries and they'll want different things in each one. So I'm just watching the same content with slight variations over and over and over and over again. If you watch something more than once and you know what to expect already, there's a sort of specific fatigue that sets in where you're dreading knowing what happens and you just want to get to the end of it. It's like if you imagine going to the movies and seeing a movie that was fine, like it was okay, but you leave and you're like, I don't need to see that movie again. But then if you were forced to watch it 10 more times, how awful it would feel. <laughs> so one example, we got in all of the Friday the 13th movies in a row. So I watched the first one. Kill her, mommy. Kill her. Kill her, mommy. And then I Kill watched her. the second one. Jason, mother is talking to you. And the third one and the fourth one. And each time I was watching it three or four times, and I was watching all the special features. I 
hate it made me feel sick watching it towards the end literally it made my body feel bad when i knew i had to watch it by the end it's just ingrained in your brain all the elements of this movie and i was watching them with two of my friends who worked there that moved out here uh from north carolina with me and we were watching them and going crazy together and we decided to start this band called Happy Campers in 3D and our music is based around diving maybe too deeply into the world of the Friday the 13th movie series. For example, I wrote a song called Hot Chili that's about this character in the third movie whose name is Chili. Oh my god, Chili is dead. Uh, and she gets killed with a hot poker that Jason takes out of the fire. And the song alludes to it by saying that he gave her heartburn. Which I felt really proud of. That uh, stupid joke. I have a band called Tuft with two of my friends that I don't watch movies with. We came out with our first album, and now we're recording new music, and it's always, it always feels like we're on the border of doing it full-time. One, one story that kind of relates to work, I guess. I had a song get placed in a TV show, uh, Californication, and uh, I got really excited and I was like, oh, I can finally like, quit my job because this job has come in. And then we actually ended up getting that show, Californication, at work. So I was just watching each episode of the show at work, hoping that I would hear myself. Moment between us where everything will be okay again. Almost like fast forwarding to the end of each one. I have got like like we're just to see if the song was in there. And I never heard myself, so I just sort of put it out of my mind. Like they must have cut it out. Uh, and I found out later that they did use it, and it was at the end of this episode. It kind of feels like the end of something. Makes you wonder. That was the one episode of the season that I hadn't watched at work. If she was the only thing that was still keeping us together. Which turned out to be a good thing because even though it was like a really cool opportunity and did really help me, uh, it wasn't something that I could have like quit my job over. And if I had quit in the Jerry Maguire-style way, uh, I probably would have really screwed up my life. Under my feet, babe, grass is growing, yeah, it's time to move on. That's Casey Trela and Leslie Stevens playing a cover of the Tom Petty song, Time to Move On. Casey's band is called Tuft. And you can check out their most recent album, Look, Look, at tuftmusic.com. Our story was produced by Tommy Bazarian. Coming up, Florida, through the eyes of Lauren Groff. 
That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This hour on Studio 360, we are bringing you some of our favorite 2018 stories. About a century ago, the modern idea of Florida was invented. The permanent sunny vacation on the beach, the south of France razzle-dazzle art deco fantasies, followed by the Disney World, Miami Vice, razzle-dazzle, Mar-a-Lago, art basil fantasies. But in the shadow of all that tropical splendor, there's also, of course, a lot of difficulty and struggle. And that tension is one of the things that makes Florida an irresistible subject for lots of writers. I never wanted to write about Florida. But the thing is, you don't actually get to choose what you write about. The novelist and short story writer Lauren Groff never imagined herself living in Florida. And then, 12 years ago, ended up there. When I first came down here, I was astonished by how nature seemed to want to kill you at every turn. The mosquitoes, the palmettos are sharp, so you go out into the yard and they cut up your ankles. Uh, The alligators, there are all sorts of very weird insects. I mean, they call them uh, palmetto bugs, but they're really just flying cockroaches that are about three inches long. There's snakes everywhere. I just I just had a snake in the house. I stood for a long time at the duck pond with my dog, who sensed that she should be still and patient. The swans were on their island with the geese, and a great blue heron legged through the shallow water. I watched as the heron became a statue, then as it whipped its head down and speared something. When it lifted its beak, It held a long, thin water snake. We watched, transfixed, as the bird cracked its head down so hard three times that the snake separated in half, spilling blood. And the heron swallowed one half, which was still so alive that I could see it thrashing down that long and elegant throat. So the nature is just teeming and it's wild and it's almost uncontrollable. It feels as though it's it's a force of its own that makes its way into your house whether or not you want it to. And in some ways it seems as though Florida is trying to tell humans that you really don't belong here. I'm from a very small town in upstate New York called Cooperstown, which most people know about because it's where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. It's just a stunningly beautiful place, and it's a place, you know, that has very severe standard seasons, and it's a very small village as well. It was kind of idyllic. I think when you grow up in upstate New York or in the north, you tend to see Florida as this hot, moist, strange place, this place where it foments a lot of the craziness of America. I looked down on Florida for many, many years. When I first started dating my husband, we were in college uh, in Massachusetts, and he is a Floridian, uh, bred to the bone. 
Then we came down to Florida to visit his family. And what I knew of Florida was basically Disney World at that time. And uh, his his family home, which is in this subdivision, it's very nice. Uh, but it's, it is a gated community, and it's very separate from the rest of the town. And there are no sidewalks. And I thought, this is just a very strange mode of life. And I think that was the first thing I said when we were on the plane going back to Western Massachusetts was, I will never live in Florida. After grad school, he had this opportunity to take over his family business down in Gainesville, Florida. And so we made the decision to come down here. I tucked two bottles and a corkscrew into my sleeves and pulled myself to the doorway against the tug of wind. I could barely walk when I was through. The house heaved around me and the wind followed, overturning clocks and chairs, paging through the sheet music on the piano before snatching it up and carrying it away. It riffled through my books one by one as if searching for marginalia, then toppled the bookshelves. This book is called Florida, and it's my fifth book. It's a short story collection built around the idea of Florida and the the physical nature of the place uh, and how it sort of um, infects its characters within this book with a kind of feeling of both dread and resistance to being domesticated. There's this uh, pressure, this internal and external force of domesticity, but also resistance to domesticity, the seduction of nature. The water pushed upward from under the house, through the floor cracks, through the vents, turning my rugs into marshes. Rats scampered up the stairs to my bedroom. I trudged over the mess and crawled up, step by step, on my hands and knees. A terrapin passed me, then a raccoon with a baby clutched to its back, gazing at me with wide robber's eyes. Peekaboo, I said, and it hid its face in its mother's ruff. In the light of a battery-powered alarm clock, I saw rats, a snake, a possum, a heap of bugs scattered across the room, as if gathered for a slumber party. All those gleaming eyes in the dark. The bathroom was the sole windowless place at the heart of the house, and when I was inside, I locked them all out. I didn't know I was writing a short story collection about Florida until about two years ago when I took a look at all the stories that I'd published over the past few years. And I realized that they had a a shared thematic sense of insiderness and outsiderness, of uh, nature and domesticity, of Florida itself, sometimes tangentially as, as a character. And then I thought about how I could put them together to create a larger argument about the country as a whole and about what it is to be a woman raising boys in this contemporary world. In February, one day, I found myself sad to the bone. A man had been appointed to take care of the environment, even though his only desire was to squash the environment like a cockroach. 
I was thinking about the world my children will inherit. The clouds of monarchs they won't ever see. The underwater sound of the mouths of small fish chewing the living coral reefs that they will never hear. Becoming a Floridian was a really difficult transition for me. I still, even now, 12 years later, wake up thinking, oh my gosh, this is my life, I live in Florida. But I really do love what Florida gives me because I, I, I feel so ambivalent about it. And I think ambivalence is a very strong, beautiful drive in fiction because people think that it's wishy-washiness, but it's the opposite. It's being pulled in many directions by incredibly powerful forces. And some of my forces are rooted deeply in dislike, and other ones are in profound adoration and love. And so think of me as a spider suspended um, between all of these really intense feelings about this place where I've ended up despite myself. She was once a northerner dazzled by the frenzied flora and fauna here. But that was a decade ago, and things that once were alien life have become simply parts of her life. She is no longer frightened of reptiles, she who is frightened of everything. She is frightened of climate change. This summer, the hottest on record, plants dying all around. She is frightened of the small sinkhole that opened in the rain yesterday near the southeast corner of her house. And maybe the shy, exploratory first steps of a much larger sinkhole. She is frightened of her children because now that they've arrived in the world, she has to stay here for as long as she can. But not longer than they do. That story was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. Lauren Groff's latest story collection is called Florida, and it is out now. Coming up... Eventually, when you get too big and you do something illegal... They they come knocking on your door. The story of WBAD Pirate Radio from the renegades who created it. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Today, we're showing off some of our favorite stories from the past year. And our final one is from 2018, too, but it's about an episode that happened in the mid-1990s, when the internet was just starting to turn into a mass medium, but there were no podcasts and nobody had heard of internet radio. So it was a heyday for FM pirate radio. FM transmitters were pretty cheap and pretty easy to operate. For a few hundred dollars, you could blast your favorite music or conspiracy theories or religious beliefs as far as your little FM signal would carry them. But they call it pirate radio for a reason. 
The stations operate without licenses from the Federal Communications Commission, which was and is keen to find pirate radio stations and shut them down. So, 1995, Brooklyn. There was this UPS driver named Dave Cintron who liked hip-hop, wanted to be a DJ, and didn't like how the big New York City station, Hot 97, played only major label tunes and sanitized songs because of FCC rules against profanity. Cintron, soon to call himself DJ Cintronics, got his hands on one of those cheap transmitters. And that's where our cat and mouse story about Cintron and another pirate radio pirate, Dren Star, begins. It was a really big, clunky transmitter. It was like all tubes. My name is Dave Cintron, and I go under DJ Cintronics. You know, once I bought that, then I put it up in an apartment that I had over here in Windsor Terrace. We put the antenna up, and then I decided to call it, you know, since we knew we were doing something that was bad, we decided to call it WBAD Radio. You're listening to Better Bad Radio. Bad Radio. 91.9 FM. WBAD. Genuine sickness. New York. First time I signed on, just felt great. It was like, wow, you know, I'm on the air. And then I called friends and I said, hey, tune in to 91.9. And they would tune in. They're like, wow, what the hell are you doing? How the hell are you on the radio? And I said, well, I'm going to take this serious. I like this. I'm going to broadcast as long as I can. Yeah, this is Bad Jack Radio. Yo, what's up, Cause? What's up with those radio stations playing love songs all day long? Hey, yo, I never knew love like that before. And I don't want to know love like that no more. I'd rather hear that ill, this shit that's in trying to be plain. We don't play no commercials, so son, what you saying? Bad radio, pirate station, not creation. Sponsors and censors, we got no relation. Never break up like Jodeci and Devante. Centronics, Mystic, Carlito, Brigante. Sinister cause, D.O.T., Vigilante. If you want to battle, let's make a betting up the ante. We could get ill for real and still go to heaven. Bad radio, Sundays, 5 to 11. It felt good. You're doing something that no one else is doing, and you're doing a good job. Going on the air was the best thing in the world because we we had all the power. What was that? Yo, 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 yo. Drenstar. We here. We go by the name of Drenstar. I was born and raised in Lower East Side of Manhattan. I've been doing music for over 25 years. Centronics reached out to me because he was already doing the show. He was doing a house music, club music. And when he brought me on board, it was to do the hip-hop show. He never did hip-hop before, so we collaborated on that together, and it really went uh, viral wasn't the word at the time, but yeah, it went viral. Back in the 90s, you couldn't get your music played anywhere. I saw an opportunity to play some of this independent music, the stuff that the radio stations like Hot 97, they wouldn't play. You know, we provided four or five hours of just nonstop raw hip-hop that people were just fiending for at the time. Where they didn't have to buy a mixtape and they didn't have to go run around. They could just be wherever they were at, in the park, in the barbershop. We had a lot of barbershops. That's all the talk of the town goes on. You know, that's where we got a lot of love. We were the only ones at that time providing us type a platform for the type of music we were playing. We played all the dirty versions. We would do like a test run. I would be in the car and try to go as far as I can. And, and the signal was nice and crispy. And, you know, we would know what zones we were hitting hard by our callers. Good caller. Where are you, you calling from? I'm calling from the Flatbush right now. 
Yo, Papa, man, what's the hottest station, baby? 91.9. This right. one got it right. What's up, man? Where you calling from? From Bushwick. Hello, you on B80 Radio? Yeah. Yo. What's up, baby? Yo, wanna give a shout out to the funk, nigga. Right, Hold wait. on, I'm gonna take a bath, Kate. Where you calling from? The lower. Lower deck. B80 Radio to yeah, area. Like it was priceless. Like, going on the air is just priceless, you know? Knowing that what you're doing and speaking into a microphone, knowing that thousands and thousands of people are hearing you and, and supporting you and appreciate what you're doing for the hip-hop community, and it was a great feeling. Every time we did our show, it was nothing but love. Well, up? Got my nugget. Terra Squadian. Captain Leader. Big McOpen Pun in the studio right now, know what I mean? This is why they get hate us. Know what I'm saying? They hate us for doing our thing, we'll hate them back. <laughs> hate play haters. It was really Dren who, I gotta say, was out there and pushing, you know? I saw Dren was very aggressive and very ambitious, and, and he really promoted, and that's what I needed. It got big, you know, we, we got a lot of love, and eventually when you get too big and you do something illegal, you know, they, they come knocking on your door. I did know it was illegal, yeah, of course. So we knew we'll do it at a certain time where we know the FCC's, you know, it's on a Sunday night. In order for them to come out, they gotta really wanna get you. Hi, I'm Barbara Nevins-Taylor from the UPN 9i team. Barbara Nevins-Taylor called us while we was on the air one time, and I had a whole phone conversation with her. And she was like, hey, Adrian, how you doing? I'm from Channel I'm like, oh, here we go. Because, you know, I watch that channel and I watch what the I-Team does. And I'm like, every time they get involved in something, they're like, they're shutting you down. Like, they're not going to praise anything you do. Like, damn, man. She started laughing, you know. And I was like, I hope you're not coming from my head. And she goes, no, I'm in awe of what you're doing. I got your contact information from some of these artists. I can't get any radio play on Hot 97, so that's why I want to sit down with you. So, you know, when she came at me like that, I said, all right. They asked me if I was willing to do an interview on the news station, and I told them, no way. There's no way. I said, they're going to kill us. I said, that's a slap in the face to the FCC. I said, the FCC, they're not bothering us right now. I don't know if they know about us, but we're doing really good. And they said, oh, you know, this is going to help us. We're going to get put on mainstream radio. And I said, I'm not taking that chance. And I told them, no. Bottom line, Hells no, I'm not doing it. Yeah, Centronics didn't want to do it because he was always very secretive with the station and with this and with that. And he had a job. He didn't want his employer to find out. You know, he could have lost a job for that. You know, this is all I did. So I didn't care about that. But he begged me, Dran, no, 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 we don't. And I said, you crazy. I'm doing it. Like, this is exposure. Like, we're already on the radio. Now they could put a face to the name. Like, we got to move forward. Like, if you don't want to move forward and you want to keep doing your, your nine to five for the rest of your life, that's cool. But I'm, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. He was like, nah, man, come on. We don't got to do it. And I said, well, you don't got to do it. I'm doing it. One day, Dren told me that he was having a, a bunch of artists coming to his studio. And I said, why so many people? And I had a feeling something was wrong. I said, okay, so jumped in my car. Drove to Manhattan. I go up, I knock on his door as a surprise, and guess who I see there? Barbara Nevins Taylor from UPN9. And I said, What are you doing? 
I told you I didn't want to do this. You're going to kill us. We're doing good. We don't need this. So they were looking at me like I was Debbie the Downer. Like I just ruined everything. Barbara Nevis Taylor goes to me, you know, what you're doing is a great thing for the hip hop community. And, and I said, look, thank you, you know, but I don't need you to recognize us. We're doing just fine without you, you know. She says, oh my God, you know, why wouldn't you take credit for something you started, such a wonderful thing? And I said, I'm not interested. As a matter of fact, I didn't want you here. And then one of my guys, he says, just do it. So I said, all right, you know what, I'll do it. But I don't want that camera pointing in my face. Take my silhouette. She started asking me questions. Do you know that what you're doing is illegal? And all kinds of stuff that I just didn't want to answer. I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe that she's asking me these questions. I finished the interview, I left, and I told Trendstar and Smooth B, if they aired this, we're done. And he stood quiet, we did the show. I went back to my studio. A week later... And now, tonight's UPN 9 News Rundown. To report from our investigative team, we're about to take you inside the secret world of pirate radio. They are outlaws of the airwaves, willing to risk jail to broadcast their kind of music. I-Team's Barbara Nevins-Taylor is here tonight with the story. Barbara? Brenda, they are the bad boys of radio, and their passion is hip-hop. And to play what they like, they break the law every Sunday night when they blast their music into the boroughs. I was sick to my stomach because all this work that I put in to do the station is going to go down the tubes. And I meant what I said because that's a slap in the face to the FCC. They're going to go after us. That's how I felt. And I was sick to my stomach where I couldn't even go to work because I was just like, I can't believe they're doing this. You know, they're actually going to do it. Syntronics, the creator of Bad Radio, doesn't want to be identified, but he allowed the I-Team to visit during a Sunday night broadcast, as long as we don't reveal the location. Now, you're breaking the law. Is that frightening for you? Everybody breaks the law in, in some ways, you know? You know, we're playing music. We're not selling drugs. Creating a legal radio station is expensive. If a New York City radio station were available on a legal frequency, it would cost in the neighborhood of $75 million, according to industry insiders. Instead, BAD uses the frequency shared by stations on Long Island and in New Jersey. And that's why the FCC could make them stop broadcasting. Do you have two separate transmitters, or do you have it? That, I, I really don't want to discuss okay. that. The piece came on. It was a long piece. And then phone calls crazy labels everybody was like now it was like legit now everybody wanted to be on board they aired it and that was it i shut it down i said i'll tell you what you want to go back on the air at least wait a month and i said if we go on the air we'll do it from your studio in manhattan okay and they were like okay <laughs> so we went to his apartment building, which is housing projects, public housing. So we did it at night and we put the antenna up and I was in heaven because the signal was ridiculous in the Lower East Side. I drove out to Jersey and I heard it in Jersey. So that was phenomenal. On top of the world. Drain yeah, 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 91.9. Go rap. 
B.A.D. Radio, call us up right now. Something here, we need to go out for us, we go piano. You know what I'm saying? Get this shout-out session going on. Represent, baby. I just want to freestyle and shit. What up? Come on, shit, and move. Be over here on the one and twos. It wasn't even a week that we went into this Manhattan location. Not even a week. We get a phone call. And this guy calls. He sounds really official. And he says, hi, where are you guys? Where's the antenna? So he's asking questions. So we said, um, I think it's time to go. <laughs> and we hung up on him. I said, I don't know who that was, but doesn't sound good, you know? So I believe the next week I called Dren and I told him from over here in Park Slope, I told him to, you know, how to turn the transmitters on. Next thing you know, I get a phone call. And he says, the FCC just got here with the NYPD. They came drawing a live broadcast. I'll never forget it. I heard the knock on the door and I looked through the peak hole and there was like 20 people in my hallway. And I was like, oh, ish. It was the FCC with the housing authority, with the cops. Like, it was crazy. It was like a, a big raid. And they just wanted to see everything. Judah Mazback from the FCC, he asked permission to come in. And he wanted to see. And he told me why he was there. I knew why he was there. He asked me if I knew who he was. I said, yeah, I know who you are. I was on the phone. I said, shut it off immediately. Let him in. They're going to ask you for a license, so you tell him you don't have it. Don't let him take any of the equipment, because he has to give you a warning first. So he came in, and he said, where's DJ Centronics? And he says, he's not here. <laughs> the NYPD was fascinated, <laughs> more than anything. They were like, wow, this is cool. But the uh, FCC was like, this is not cool, you know? <laughs> so, you know, after that, that was it. I shut it down. I went back on, but I moved. I started running around. Finally took my transmitter back. And then he went to try to do his own thing, which didn't do so well. I mean, he didn't do it out of his apartment. He did it somewhere else. You know, he did it his way. And at first he was trying to call it bad radio. And I said, no, it doesn't work that way, Trent. I'll tell you a funny story. After we got busted, right? <laughs> I'm bad. This is this is I was a teenager, so you know this is this is the things we did. I was on Avenue D, East 10th Street and Avenue D. One of my friends had an apartment there, it was a pretty high building, and we had the antenna on his balcony. And I go downstairs to the store and I'm crossing the street and I see the Ford Explorer. I see a guy put up a newspaper real fast. And I say, Oh, this look at this film right here. So, you know, naturally I'm nervous. I'm like, oh, he found this again. This guy is crazy. So I go upstairs and I tell my friends, I'm like, yo, we got to shut this shit down. The FCC dude is downstairs. And he had an Explorer. I forgot the color, whether it was blue or green. But on the passenger seat, he had a big, I don't know what it was. It was like a big square, a big black square. But I went upstairs and to buy some time, I called the cops on him and said that there's a guy selling guns in front of 10th Street and Avenue D. And he has a whole crate of guns in his front passenger seat of his vehicle. And I put that number one call and about 20 cop cars came. They Guns drawn out. They pulled out their guns on him. That gave us time, you know, shut everything down and take it and just run. 
Yeah, after I did that, I never went back on again. I stopped. I said, I'm not getting jammed up with this. That era was over for me. That was Dren Star, along with Dave Sintron, a.k.a. DJ Sintronics, who were on pirate radio station WBAD in New York City between 1995 and 1998. And after that three-year stint at WBAD, Dave Sintron went mainstream, DJing for Sirius Satellite Radio. But he still works for UPS, where he's a union rep and creator of Local 804 Radio. Dren Starr opened a recording studio named, appropriately, Pirate Recordings, and worked as a tour manager for several artists, including Ghostface Killa. That story was produced by David Gorin. A version of it appeared earlier on Lost Notes, which is an excellent podcast from KCRW in Los Angeles, as you can hear for yourself at kcrw.com. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. It's the new year. Happy to have you, and thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Dear Journal, me again, Doug. Sorry I didn't write yesterday. I was too busy having a nervous breakdown. Everything about that show was from a kid's point of view, so the music had to be that way too. It had to be homemade. How the quietest show cut through all the noise. The story of Nickelodeon's animated series, Doug. Next time on Studio 360.